0: We have the boss. No, not Springsteen. It's baseballhq.com publisher Ron Chandler. Next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Robinson waits. Here comes the pitch. And there goes a line drive to left field. Swan is after it. He leaps it over his head against the wall. Here comes Gillian Schultz. Hands feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. He levels about a couple of times, Shao kicks and he fires, Rose swings. There it is, there it is, get out! get out! all right. It's number 4192. A live drive single
0: into
1: left center. Swung on and hit in the air to deep center.
0: Finley back, away oh, back, on the track, at the wall, gone. A three-run home run for Scott Broses. Scott
2: Brogius
1: might well be. Wide. The 0-2 pitch on the way. Shag it's over. He has done it. High fastball. Randy Johnson being mobbed
3: by Scott Bradley down to greet him and the entire Mariner team. Here on the 2nd of June, it ends at 9:51 Pacific
4: Daylight Time.
2: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now.
0: Hey, wait a minute. This isn't right. Oh, right. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, let's take that again, Angela.
2: Baseball HQ Radio starts right now.
0: Oh, come on. This is the basketball music. Angela, one more time.
2: Baseball HQ Radio starts right now and here's your host from BaseballHQ.com columnist Patrick Davitt
0: and welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March 17th show number nine of the 2012 fantasy baseball season Glad you could take time out from March Madness, and I hope you're having a happy St. Patty's Day. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler, we'll have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, discussing Beyond the Illusion of the Year of the Pitcher. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Anthony Rizzo, a first-base prospect with the Chicago Cubs, and in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler doing double duty, talking about the low price of fungibility. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, it's not basketball, but we don't need it. We got baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League, but leading off the National League report is our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here.
0: Nick, uh, somewhere here and there around the interwebs, as we call them, uh, Lance Lynn of the St. Louis Cardinals has been mentioned as a long-shot bid for the closer role should things fall apart for Jason Mott and some other guys, but now it looks like Lance Lynn might be replacing Chris Carpenter to open the season in the St. Louis rotation. He's had some success. Uh, how do we like Lance Lynn as a potential starter for a fantasy program?
1: Well, you know, Lance Lynn. Uh, Lance Lynn uh, is uh, had an excellent season last year coming out of the bullpen. A 3.12 ERA, struck out more than 10 batters per nine innings, uh, 145 BPV. Those are incredible numbers. Um, and he pitched a very good game yesterday. Actually, he had, uh, on on uh, Thursday uh, went four innings. Uh, I don't believe allowed any any runs. Uh, so looked good in the, in that first stretch out start. Of course, the other news on Carpenter just uh, this morning, Friday morning, uh, as is that, that Carpenter is a um, uh, through a bullpen session yesterday, felt pretty good afterwards. So uh, still a chance that he could be ready by opening day. Uh, if he's not, certainly a chance that he might wind up as the fifth starter, uh, meaning that they wouldn't need him for the first couple of weeks. So things are real iffy now with in terms of what's going to happen with Lance Lynn. But let's talk a little bit about Lance Lynn anyway. Um, as I said, Lance Land pitched very, very well out of the bullpen last year. If you look back to, and he was a starter throughout his term in the minors, if you look back to his work in the minors, you see a huge difference between his DOM rate as a starter and his DOM rate out of the bullpen. 10.4 last season in the minors, consistent DOM rates of 6.2, 6.6, 6.3. So that's certainly understandable. The guy probably can't throw as hard uh, when he's... Uh, when he's figuring on working seven or eight innings or six or seven or however many as he can if he's going to figure he's got to work one inning. So my guess is that uh, if Lance Lynn goes back to the to the rotation, we'll see a little bit of slippage in those skills. Uh, that, 100, that 100 plus BPV might drop down to 70, which is about what he was was doing at uh, MLEs and the minors. Uh, still got a good ground ball rate uh, this is a guy who's going to a lot of brown balls, get a decent number of strikeouts, uh, could actually be useful in the, uh, in the rotation. But I think he might be more useful out of the pen.
0: His minor league equivalent for command, which is strikeouts to walks, has been over 2.0, which is kind of our benchmark for that particular ratio. You always want to see at least two strikeouts for every walk. And I'm intrigued by the ground ball percentage. It was 57% when he was pitching for St. Louis out of the bullpen last year, 60% major league equivalent in his minor league stints. That's a pretty impressive ground ball rate. Anything over about 54 or so is something that should make you sit up and take notice.
1: Now, yeah, that's a very impressive ground ball rate, and so even that dom uh, kind of in the mid sixes will will get you uh, by real well if you've got a ground ball rate that high. But then you take that ground ball rate and put it with a dom over ten, and you've really got something.
0: But as you said, the chances that he's going to maintain a ground ball over ten uh, under the circumstance of being uh, starting is pretty remote.
1: Yeah, I think that that's fairly remote. Uh, what would be nice if be if the dom rate would sit somewhere around uh, seven point five or eight. With that ground ball rate, that would be pretty good, too.
0: Yeah, it would be great. Uh, but I, as you said, I, it seems a little unlikely that a guy who's been pretty consistently under 7, actually under 6.5 really, in his minor league equivalents, is is going to all of a sudden jump up to 8 strikeouts. Seems like pretty much a long shot. Uh, Jaime Garcia, also in St. Louis, has a much firmer lock on a rotation slot. And this is guy a guy who has some real intriguing possibilities as a starter that a lot of fantasy owners might not really get at this point
1: yeah he really does I mean Jaime Garcia was great as uh, in his rookie year 2.70 ERA I mean that looked terrific and then what happened last year we we said after that that uh, his his ERA was 3.78 in 2010 there's still to be some slippage well there was some slippage uh last year his ERA kind of floated back up to a 3.56 And uh, you kind of look and go, "Eh, maybe this guy isn't as good as I thought he was. Well, Jaime Garcia really is that good. Uh, Overall, his skills were improved last year. BPV of 99, uh, and that's pitching pitching in the rotation. Dominance of 7.2, command 3.1. Really excellent skills, even though that ERA went up just a little bit. So here's a guy who may get passed over a bit. Seems to be getting passed over a bit in drafts, but a 25-year-old left-hander, Putting up those kind of numbers is certainly someone to to keep your eye on. Yeah,
0: and he also has a really good ground ball percentage combined with a solid strikeout rate. He did have a bit of a decline in the second half last year, as you mentioned, but the, the skill stayed pretty solid. I mean, his, his dom was off slightly, so maybe that's the, the key indicator to watch. But especially going into the start of the year, he's a year older, a bit bigger and a bit stronger. Maybe uh, this is the year that you could really catch lightning in a bottle
1: yeah maybe indeed this may be the and in keeper leagues you may not get him much cheaper than he's going to come right now uh, after slipping a bit after in, his, in his kind of sophomore stint.
0: staying with starting pitchers uh, the pittsburgh pirates have a guy james mcdonald another pitcher who's going to be flying under the radar in a lot of leagues for a lot of owners but this is a guy again who has the kind of skills that if not make us jump up and down at least make us take a second look
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, Jane McDonald went to Pittsburgh last year after after pitching for the Dodgers and had a kind of underwhelming 4.21 ERA, a 1.49 whip. Uh, so you kind of go, eh, I don't know about this guy. But when you look really look at the skills, uh, this is a guy who really put things together in the second half. Uh, dominance of almost 8, 7.9, uh, 3.6 control, a ground ball rate of 41%. Uh, really had a, a very strong second half. Um the, the only problem he had was keeping the ball in the park really against left-handers, who had a 1.5 home run per nine against him, but, and he couldn't find the plate always against left-handers, but pitched very well against right-handers. Uh, we said in the for- baseball forecaster this guy with a 3.5 ERA upside uh, could get uh, 14, 15 wins if he pitches as well as uh, as well as he could. So, Jay McDonald is certainly someone to look at. He's likely to be undervalued and someone you may be able to get cheaply in your draft.
0: Yeah, he's got all, everything's pointed in the right direction. He was up around not quite at six innings per start last year, which is a bit of a concern from a wins perspective. Also, Pittsburgh's not a really strong team. But uh, if the second half is an indicator, then James McDonald sure looks like a guy at least to look at. We're not saying, you know, rush out and buy him at all costs, but, boy, this is the kind of pitcher, because a bad team, a bad um, overall year last year, this is the kind of guy who slips down to the end of drafts, who slips down to those $1 and $2 bids at the end of auctions. So th- th- this is the kind of player that you really should be looking at as a fantasy owner. And finally, Nick, in Washington, Wilson Ramos, who came over to, the uh, Nationals from the Twins organization, they had Joe Mauer, What they need a catcher for, right? Well, as it turns out, they probably could have used him, and they certainly could have used the year that Wilson Ramos had last year. The question is, can he sustain it?
1: A you know, fabulous year last year, 15 home runs, a two sixty seven batting average, and as you said, the question is, can he sustain it? Well, here's a guy that uh, contact rated the majors 85% uh, 2010, 80% last year. Um, his his batting eye actually went up last year. He was a lot more patient at the plate with a 9% walk rate compared to 2% the year before. So probably can't sustain that batting average. XBA of 270, almost right at what he hit. So uh, batting average looks good. Now the question is, can he sustain that kind of power that he showed over last season? His power jumped a bit. His his power index was up from 96 sort of league average to 124 last year. What really made the difference was a home run per fly rate, which had been at 3% in 2010, 13% last season. And now the question, of course, right now is, what's real? Uh, is that 13% a real home run per fly rate for Wilson Ramos? Uh, or is it, uh, is it somewhere between 3% and 13%? And we don't have enough data now to know that. Uh, the, the problem is, if you can't sustain that home run per fly rate, here's a guy with a 36% fly ball rate. So not a lot of fly balls. If, if, uh, if a good percentage of them don't leave the park, then that power is going to come down.
0: I was going to say, uh, for a catcher, they tend to be fairly slow-footed, and of course, with no stolen bases, pretty much what we'd expect in two big league seasons, almost 500 at-bats. So we have to suspect that this guy is relatively slow afoot, and with a 50%-ish ground ball rate, he had 50% last year. That doesn't augur well for for his uh, home runs or for batting average. I mean, he had a 30% hit rate last year and scraped out a two sixty seven batting average right around his expected batting average, because he does hit the ball hard, but... It kind of looks nick to me like maybe the the 270ish batting average and 15 home runs represents a ceiling rather than a floor.
1: Yeah, I think that may be, a very very definitely at this point. I mean Uh, Certainly, he's 24 years old, we would expect some growth, but I think right now, counting on more than what we saw last season, is probably not a good bet.
0: Unless he does something to his swing to start generating a little more loft, because if he can put some loft on the ball with the power that he has, then you start looking at some of those uh, ground ball outs turning into line drive doubles and so on. His line drive rate was well under the 20% norm, so maybe there's a bit of room to grow there as he matures. and. We also talk at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, about the difficulty of becoming a good offensive player when you're a young catcher, because there's so much defensive work to do.
1: Right, there is. There's a whole lot to learn as a young catcher, and you're at that point you're learning pitchers and all that sort of thing. So that certainly, I think, interferes with the attempt to grow offensively.
0: Well, if the price is right, this is the kind of guy who, even if, uh, if, his, flo- if his ceiling is uh, 15 home runs, 270 batting average, and maybe 60 RBIs, that's not bad for a catcher if you get him at the right price. And as a 24-year-old catcher, maybe there is room to grow. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk to you again in a week's time.
1: Thanks a lot, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League Newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League. BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle joins us. Matt, welcome back to the show.
3: We're starting to see some Jobs being won and lost down in spring training now.
0: Yeah, it's that time of year. We're starting to see things firm up, but as we'll talk about in a minute, we're also starting to see some injuries and and players playing themselves out of playing time and creating questions. So this time of spring training is always very interesting on both sides of the coin. Before we talk about that, though, Matt, uh, I mentioned last week when we were talking about the labor drafts that had taken place on that previous weekend that uh, among other surprises in the American League auction. Alex Rodriguez of the Yankees, at one time the most powerful fantasy player you could get, actually went for less money in the draft than Brett Laurie of Toronto, who has all of about 145 big league at-bats. Do you find this really as surprising as I do?
3: I do find it surprising in one way, I guess, in that it's just amazing, even in an expert's league, how people overvalue youth compared to proven production. But when you look at A-Rod a little more closely— there are things to be concerned about. He had a high hit percentage in the first half uh, that kept his batting average up, but his expected batting average show he really isn't a 300 hitter anymore. His knee injuries affected him throughout the second half, and, and although he's had this new procedure done, we really don't know how it's going to turn out. His power is down. He's hitting more ground balls. Uh, his home run per fly ball rate's going down. Doesn't steal bases anymore. So I mean, he could be healthier. He could bounce back a little bit. But this is not the Arod that we've come to know over you know several roto seasons yeah
0: everything about him seems to be heading in the wrong direction i was just looking at his stats and although his skills seem to be pretty solid his his power skill is falling off pretty steadily from 187 in 2007 all the way down to 122 last year in almost a straight line decline his stolen base opportunities down from 15 percent in 07 down to four percent last year and his xba which always tracks pretty closely with his batting average, three fifteen in two thousand seven, all the way down to two sixty five last year, which he actually out hit. So, you know, Alex Rodriguez seems like he could be the kind of guy who is likely to go for more than he's worth just because of who he is.
3: Absolutely, and there are so many Yankee fans around the country, and that always plays into it. You want guys in your favorite team, even if you just took his first half stats, uh, using his expected batting average of 267, 26 homers. I mean nothing wrong with that but it's just not the a i mean the guy's turning 37 and this is what happens to athletes at that stage of their career
0: yeah and it's you got to figure going to go nowhere but down from here as he's uh, at a, at the advanced age as you say of 37 he's coming off one injury after another in a lot of ways you know who he reminds me of is tiger woods we have this very lofty expectation that this guy cannot fail and then all of a sudden he hits a certain age where all of the wear and tear starts to take its toll on joints, like in uh, Tiger Woods' case, his knees are troubling him, in Alex Rodriguez's case, his knees and hips are bothering him. This is just the natural progression of things.
3: This is just what happens, and and I think it's a shame when people say they should go out on top so you can remember them the way they were. But in reality, these are competitive individuals who love this game and love the sport, and he's going to play till the end, and I just hope it doesn't tarnish what people's opinion of it shouldn't but inevitably people will remember the most recent memory instead of understanding the great historical performance he's given us
0: and let's face it matt uh, although some people might overpay for it even at his advanced age and with all of his infirmities alex rodriguez in the BaseballHQ.com projection is 280 for a batting average 25 homers around 100 rbis four or five bags and a 20 or 21 dollar value that's not bad
3: It's not bad at all, and probably more reliable than Brett Laurie breaking through for sure in 2012.
0: Exactly right. Over in Chicago, the White Sox look like they're going to be calling upon Matt Thornton, who used to be the closer before Sergio Santos took the job, and then Sergio Santos, of course, traded to Toronto. So now it looks like Matt Thornton is going to draw in as the closer in Chicago, at least to start the season. How do you like his chances of succeeding in that role a second time?
3: This guy has incredible Base performance value, triple digits each of the last four years, great skills, but last year it was masked by a 35% hit rate, and that unlucky hit rate uh, brought his ERA back above the three level to 3.32. He's induced more ground balls in 2011 than in the past, reducing his fly ball rate. Uh, This guy's an amazing pitcher. He's really found his control the last four years, and he struck out more than a batter and inning each of the last four years. It did go down in 2011 a little bit. But overall, this is a really elite skill set that's been very consistent and reliable. That This is the kind of guy that you want to draft if you're going to draft a, a middle reliever or a closer, second, third-tier closer.
0: But if you're going to pay closer value, you've got to be fairly confident about closer role. And one thing that really is against Matt Thornton holding on to that role is he is left-handed.
3: He is, and there shouldn't be anything wrong with that. Billy Wagner is very successful as a left-handed closer, but reality, many managers uh, don't want to do that. Thornton tried it. He started out last year in that role and wasn't particularly effective uh, for whatever reason. It could have been the luck of his high hit rate as much as anything, but didn't get much of a chance to keep it. So I wouldn't want to pay or draft him as a full-time absolute closer. I would want to draft him based on his skills for your ERA, whip, and strikeouts per innings, and the you know, assume a few saves, 10 or 15 saves, and and let the rest be profits.
0: If there are any, chances are when, when, if the guy comes out of spring training with the role, he'll get bit up because people tend to bid up guys who have the role, even, uh, even though sometimes it doesn't make an awful lot of sense to do that. Staying with the White Sox and on their pitching staff, uh, Phil Humber looked really good last year in the first half, then started to fall apart in the second half. He looks like he's got a rotation role this year again, Matt. Uh, what do you think of Phil Humber as a, as a fantasy prospect?
3: This guy's a great end game speculation. Uh, even though it looked like his second half was worse than the first half, it was actually better when we used his expected ERA. The difference was that hit rate, or balls in play, the batting average on balls in play, was only 23% in the first half and 36% in the second. And that really hid some skills growth in that second half. His dominance went up to 7.7, which is. Higher than it's ever been in his career. Really, he's a you know six strikeouts per nine, maybe five and a half. He's not a big strikeout pitcher. He's a ground ball pitcher. Forty-seven percent of balls in play were on the ground last year. But that's the kind of pitcher you want in U.S. Cellular Field, which is the most friendly to home run hitters uh, in the league. So this is a guy who's suited for his park. He improved in the second half when everyone in your league thinks he did worse in the second half. So he's really a nice bargain uh, come draft day. That you can get in the end game.
0: Yeah, if he could even sustain half of that growth in in dom that he had in the second half, combine that with that 50% ground ball rate, lots of strikeouts, lots of ground balls is a recipe for success in any park but particularly in this little bandbox the US Cellular Field really is.
3: Well, and he has great control. He only walked 2.3 batters per nine innings, 1.8 the year before when you look at his minor league and major league stats together. So he's got great control. If you're not going to strike out a lot of guys, you have to have great control and keep the ball on the ground, and Humber does both of those.
0: And, of course, uh, also helps with the whip if you're not walking a lot of guys and actually helps ERA as well because the fewer base runners you have, the less likely they are to come around and score. So Philip Humber, call him a speculative pick. Over in Tampa Bay, Jeff Neiman seems to be battling for the last starter role in Tampa with Wade Davis, who probably went into the spring training as the leader in that race. And now it looks like Neiman might be getting the upper hand.
3: Well, Neiman's another great end game play in mixed leagues. He had a great second half last year, and his command was 2.8. he strike out seven batters per nine innings. He brought his fly ball rate down to 34%. This guy has a three-year rising dominance and a three-year rising ground ball rate. So he's doing exactly the right things, taking his time each year, getting a little bit better. He had an unlucky home run for fly ball last year, so... There's a lot of reasons to think Neiman could be a very profitable starter in 2012.
0: Yeah, Stephen Nickran, BaseballHQ.com, starting pitching, buyer's guide writer, noted that Neiman has really had an unlucky home run per fly ball rate, which, if it goes back to normal, would mean a drop in ERA. So Jeff Neiman might be worth looking at. Over in Kansas City, Matt, the uh, odds-on favorite to be the catcher was the young catcher, Salvador Perez, who signed a relatively long contract for such a young fellow a couple of weeks ago. Now it turns out he's hurt. And what does that say for Brian Pena, who penciled in as the backup?
3: Well, he's gotten a lot of at-bats the last couple years here. Pena really does make great contact. Had an 89% contact rate last year. But that's about it. Uh, He doesn't have power. Uh, He doesn't hit the ball with authority. He hits a lot of ground balls. So he's not going to have many RBIs. He bats at the bottom of the lineup. He's not going to score a lot of runs. He doesn't walk a lot. So he's low risk, but very low reward. So if you're in a deeper league, he's a guy that maybe you can put in there and won't hurt your batting average at least. Uh, for a second catcher. But other than that, he probably has very limited usefulness while Perez is out.
0: And the question is, how long will Perez be out? Uh, We're looking at a torn meniscus. That usually is a six- to eight-week proposition, sometimes longer, depending on how it heals. And the thing about uh, a guy who makes a lot of contact, if he gets a lot of at-bats, he's going to get his share of runs and RBIs, Matt. There's just no way around it, even if he's mostly grounding out, as you said. We had him projected for a little less than 300 at-bats in a backup role with 30 RBIs. If you give him another 100 uh, 100 at bats, maybe you're up to looking at 45 RBIs. Well,
3: he's the kind of guy that can get some at bats and not hurt your batting average and therefore have a chance to accumulate some of those counting stats.
0: That's what you have to like. And at the start of this segment, Matt, I mentioned that uh, this is the time of spring training where we are starting to hear about injuries like Salvador Perez, probably an even bigger one in Detroit where the highly heralded rookie Jacob Turner was all but locked in as a rotation slot. Now he's having shoulder issues, and I'm wondering what that means for uh, fellow rookie Andy Oliver.
3: Well, Andy Oliver has been very high in the dominance score. He strikes out nearly a batter per inning in the minors, but he's always had trouble finding the plate. He's had walk rates as high as 7.8 in nine innings last year in Detroit. Of course, an incredibly small sample size. But before that, 5.3 when he was up with the Tigers, 4.9 in Toledo last year in AAA. This guy really struggles finding the plate. So even though he has a high strikeout rate, he led the International League in strikeouts last season. Uh, It's very difficult for him to keep the ball over the plate. He's got to control that fastball. He's got to be able to locate it. This spring, he's walked three guys in seven innings already. Um, so he's not one to really bet on, even though he's going to be had a good offense behind him in Detroit.
0: Yeah, I, the uh, walks are what do it for me, Matt. I just look at a guy like this, and I think all the talent in the world, uh, the tremendous strikeout rate, especially in the minors, he has looked very, very solid, but boy, oh boy, you just can't put up with a guy who's walking six or seven guys per nine.
3: It reminds me a lot of Andrew Miller, who came up with all that hype you know, several years ago, and, and he just has not developed as he struggles and struggles to find that zone.
0: All right, Matt, you have your market pulse commentary later on in the show. What's your topic this week?
3: This week, we're going to look beyond the pitching illusions to see whether you should draft starters earlier this year since last year was the year of the starter.
0: Thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you again in a week's time.
3: Look forward to it, Patrick.
0: Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview is next with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. This is Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Hi, this is Rob Gordon, one of the minor league analysts at Baseball HQ. I'm also the co author, along with Jeremy Deloney, of the 2012 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which is available through Baseball HQ and will be delivered in late January and plenty of time for your 2012 draft prep. The book contains statistical and scouting information on over 1,000 of the best prospects in baseball, along with numerous articles and valuable lists. The book uses all of the invaluable Baseball HQ statistical tools to help you figure out which prospects are likely to have the biggest impact and when they will reach the majors.
0: Order the Minor League Baseball Analyst 2012 now at BaseballHQ.com for $19.95 plus shipping and handling. As a special bonus, if you order the analyst directly from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get an online update of all 30 organizational lists in March 2012, And at the same time, an online update of the Top 50 Fantasy Prospects. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined by the publisher and founder of BaseballHQ.com, Ron Chandler. Ron, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to be on. Ron, earlier this month you had a Fantasy Friday report which also aired here on Baseball HQ Radio as a Master Notes commentary explaining the difference between strategically punting a category and tactically punting that category. Could
4: you expand maybe on what you meant by that? It starts with just the difference between a strategy and a tactic. Uh, when we think strategically, we're thinking a, a more higher-level overarching plan for, for, for going into a draft, more of a, a longer-term, higher-level thing, whereas a tactic is is more re- reactionary, more it's something you react to during the draft, or it's a, more of a short-term type of uh, uh, part of the planning process. So when it comes to punting a category, I don't really think there, there are very many... Uh, uh, times when you want to go into a draft thinking that you're going to uh, punt a particular category, but I think during the draft, it's a very um, it's a very usable uh, tactic to to change a strategy in midstream or to change an approach. You know, for instance, if if you're say a third of the way through the draft and you see you've been closed out on a lot of uh, stolen base sources, at that point you might decide, okay, rather than chasing what few stolen bases are left and maybe overpaying for them. Maybe I'll punt stolen bases now that here I am at this point in the draft. So I think during the draft, it's it's a usable, uh, it, 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 as a tactic, it's usable. But I don't think I would, I would plan uh, to punt a category going into a draft. Is there a difference if you're talking about a
0: keeper league where you go into the draft knowing that maybe there aren't that many stolen bases because they've all been kept
4: and that therefore strategically it makes sense right from the outset not to bother? Certainly, and in the keeper league, that changes the dynamic a little bit because going into the draft, you you have more information as to what uh, the talent pool looks like, and uh, from there, you, you you I think you need to be able to uh, use punting as part of your your analytical arsenal, if you will, because uh, I mean, if there are no stolen bases available, obviously you can't chase what's not there. True enough, and, and uh, another thing, I I was
0: talking about this with uh, a fellow in a, in a league that I play in. And it was about the changing nature of the competitive level of the league. Uh, the league we were talking about has historically had, it's a 4 by 4 league, so it's a 96-point maximum. And historically, the winning team was in the 78-79 range, but over the last three years, that's fallen now to where... 70, 71, even 69 has been a winning score, and that seems to make it a little easier to contemplate strategically punting a category because you just don't need those points as much as you used to in order to, to field a competitive team.
4: Well, that's interesting. Um, I never really thought of it that way, but that makes sense as the, as the level of competition rises. That's got to be a really fun league to play in, though, I mean, uh, when you know that everybody pretty much has a chance to contend each year, and and, uh, I guess it opens up more strategic options for you. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, it is interesting, and I think it's—we've talked about this in the past, that as the information divide shrinks because everybody has access to similar kinds of information— uh, even people who are willing to uh, go out and avail themselves of, of top quality services like BaseballHQ.com, more people understand what it takes to build a winning team, there's more discussion of strategy, even uh, online and what have you, where it used to be all just player projection disagreements, now people are actually thinking strategically and discussing the strategies and tactics, and all of a sudden that information disadvantage shrinks, so that there's more teams who know about good players, it's harder to, to get a sleeper, you know, the old-fashioned sleeper that we used to rely on back in the in the early days of rotisserie because you know for whatever reason we had access to the usa today that that week and our opponents didn't so we knew about uh tom goodwin who was a a base stealing guy that you could get for a dollar at the end those
4: advantages are gone and therefore that advantage shrinks Right, and, and this is something that we advise our readers at baseball h q about as well one of, one of the biggest complaints we get is that can, can you can you do something to prevent the other guys in my league getting access to your information uh, they they I guess the perception is that you know the information itself is the advantage to them. When in fact, I think um, the quality of, of of competition and the the enjoyment of, of participating in this hobby increases when more players in the league have the same information and can talk on the same level, both informationally and strategically. And then it becomes more of a competitive game and more fun. I think so. Uh, um, I guess that's you know we we tell our readers that that's. It's not a disadvantage to have more guys in your league having access. It's, it's actually an advantage.
0: From the point of view of having fun, it definitely is. And, and a league where the bottom guy's at 45 points and the top guy's at 68 is a lot more fun than a league where the bottom guy's at 18 and the top guy's at 91. Sure. Punting, uh, we've talked about punting. The Lima strategy that you invented back in the day there are a few of these kind of strategic approaches that have been discussed and tried and proved or disproved. And I'm wondering, Ron, at this stage of the game, do you think
4: we're ever going to see another significant new strategic approach to fantasy baseball? I think it's possible, and I think what's going to drive it is is the new formats of the game that are coming out. You know, For instance, right now, one of the fastest growing formats is these draft and hold leagues where the rosters are very, very deep. And I I think, participants in these leagues are just first getting a feel for the strategic implications of having to draft, say, a 50-man roster. And uh, I think that is where we're going to find some more of these new types of strategies That, uh, like the Lima plan uh, when when that came out, when 4x4 was was, was more prevalent back in the late 90s. But these deep leagues, I think, are going to generate some more strategies that uh, we haven't really found yet. And once we have a few years under our belt of playing these games, I think they'll come out.
0: This is Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Ron Chandler, the publisher and founder of BaseballHQ.com. And Ron, you've been really embracing uh, lately the need to understand that the
4: projections are imprecise and how to deal with that. Can you talk about that for a minute? One of the the, the analogies I use with with uh, this whole thing is, is um, forecasting weather. You know, right here this today they're projecting it's going to be sixty five degrees in, in Southwest Virginia and you know, we we look at that as, okay, that's a point that we're going to use as as a point of reference to decide, you know, how we're going to dress and, and and what we're going to do and whatnot. But if it's not 65, it turns out to be 62 or 67. We're not really going to feel that different. It's not going to change our behavior in regards to the temperature. And and that that variance between 62 and 67 hardly matters at all. And I think that same mindset applies to projecting individual statistics in in, in fantasy baseball. You know, if Halbert Pujols is projected to hit 38 home runs, if he hits 36 or 35 or 40, it's not going to change our behavior, it's not going to change the way we view him at the draft. And so I think rather than obsessing over getting the precision out of these projections, finding, you know, getting more and more accurate or precise, is, I think it's a waste of time. I think what we need to do is find ways to to strategize this game and to plan our our drafts based upon a range of expectations for these players and and so that's how you know we came up with the the mayberry method which basically takes skills and 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 calls it down to a a 6 point uh gauge for each player for each element of skill so you know power on a scale of 0 to 5 and speed and batting average and playing time even and, and uh, arranging and ranking players based upon those overall uh buckets of skill rather than having to pinpoint and say a guy's going to hit, you know, 38 home runs or steal 25 bases, which I think is just a waste of time. And so a, a five level skill for power would indicate an Albert Pujols
0: type player without locking in the idea that you need to expect exactly 39 home runs from him or something even particularly close. And then can you add up all the power Mayberry scores to understand that your team has a good power...
4: Um, profile or not? Sure. I mean, by by pulling, uh, arranging these scores on, on on the scale. I mean, they can be added up. They can be ranged any way you want, really, whatever best meets your needs. And you know, one of the nice things that Mayberry also does is is we add in our reliability re- reliability grades, um, which which measure health, experience, and consistency. So you, you get a profile of a player based upon his his you know an overall skills. Uh, it's a profile, I guess, and his reliability scores, so it gives you more or less an idea that this is a player who is strong in these skills, weak in these skills, and here is the risk associated with those skills. And, and the Mayberry method gives you that, that seven-character gauge that encapsulates a whole player rather than saying he's going to specifically do this, 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 and this. Yeah, the, the
0: uh, reliability part of it I think is way more important than people are understanding, or that's starting to become maybe part of the new strategy that I was talking about earlier in that uh, we had at BaseballHQ.com a couple of years ago this idea of a portfolio planning method where your big dollar guys, your early round guys, really the focus was not just on production, because we were fairly confident that production from a uh, Albert Pujols was going to be strong or a Joey Votto was going to be strong, the question was whether you could be very, very confident that he was going to deliver the projection rather than being uh, in the middle of a, of a wide range that you couldn't afford to lose. And so those reliability scores allow us to say, of these two players, one of them is sort of an AAB type of uh, very high reliability player, the other one has a maybe a D and an F grade for health and i'm going to go with the aab guy because i can't afford to lose a guy to another injury if he's my top overall draft pick.
4: right. and and the nice thing about the the reliability grades is that i think everybody has their own personal tolerance for risk. so you you might say that, you know, i want to go after a buster posey even though he has a, a poor health grade. um and, and that's my choice if I decide to do that, whereas someone else might say, well, I, I, I can't take the risk of, of him being my number one catcher, so maybe I'll go with, a, I don't know, a Yadier Molina who's more consistent and has been put up the numbers year after year. He might not put up the same productivity, but he's going to give me numbers that I can trust, and so I'd rather go after a guy like him. So it gives you basically the two elements of, of productivity and risk, and you can assess which is more important to you when you're uh, putting together your draft plan.
0: I found one of the more interesting things is looking at those guys who have F uh, playing time scores, which indicates they're going to have very few innings or very few at-bats, because if they have the good skills and some miracle happens and the opportunity arises, this is where your 23rd round sleeper comes from, a guy with a a lot of ability who's just sitting on the bench waiting his turn. If his turn comes, you really latched onto
4: something. Absolutely, And and that's the beauty of it, too. I mean... You could be scanning a player's slugging percentages and whatnot to do the same thing, but the, the Mayberry scores are just, they're very intuitive because they're all on a scale of 0 to 5. And, you know, one of the things that, that our research has shown in the past is that something like 70% of these the surprises each year are... Playing time based, there are players who back into unexpected playing time. So to find those guys who have high skills and are just either blocked on playing time or or have that possible upside because they're behind a risky front liner, those are your are real sleepers. Those are the guys you want to tuck away on your reserve list because that's where the real upside lies. And and being able to identify the true skills is where that starts.
0: You mentioned some of that research that you did. Also talk about. Uh, the research that you did into how few players who get drafted in the top round each year are actually in the top or top round worthy once the year is over and you look back on it, it's quite surprising how few of them there are.
4: Yeah, and that and that feeds into the whole idea of, of trying to find precision in the forecasting process. It's, it's really a fallacy uh the top round the top 15 players each year over the past 8 years we've been able to to nail those players only about 6 out of 15 each year uh actually finish in the top round so basically we're looking you know even this year you're looking at your your top 15 top to bottom you look at that list and you think to yourself nine of these guys are not going to finish in the top 15 and then you know the next part of the analysis is okay which nine is it going to be and you look for risk factors up and down that top level, and you start thinking, well, maybe Jacoby Ellsbury's not going to return, you know, the type of power that's making him a first rounder. Maybe uh, Justin Verlander is, is is being listed too high here because uh, everyone is looking at last year's numbers and thinking he's going to be able to repeat. And then you start thinking, well, you know, who are the guys who are not in the first round? who are going to move up based upon you know, this this research. You know, think about it. Now. Over the last eight years, only six out of those 15 have returned first-round value each year. So it's, it's very fluid, and it really opens up possibilities to start thinking about players in different ways.
0: You mentioned that we kind of overestimate the power of last year's performance. That's, that's a really inherent bias, this recency bias, isn't it?
4: Oh, gosh, it's just huge. Uh, you, you take a look at you know, the... the the players who performed well last year invariably have their ADPs and their, their expected uh, draft prices elevated far beyond what is reasonable to expect, and it's all based upon uh, the most recent performance. You know, and, and if you, if we can pull away from what a player looked like as of October 2011 and start thinking more in terms of a three- or five-year scan of player performance, I think that is going to be more helpful in the long run because last year, you know, we don't... We've always said you don't predict a player's performance based on what he did last year, but the ADPs are showing the exact opposite. People are so overvaluing last year's numbers that it uh, it's really taking away from getting a true value of, of what their potential is for 2012.
0: When you looked at the players who were bouncing up into the top 15 who were drafted well below that first-round level was there any consistency or rationale behind why they made that move was it uh and and where did
4: they come from what round did they tend to come from was that scattered uh well about 80% of of the uh, the players who finish in the top 15 in any year come from actually the ADP top 4 rounds uh during the preseason so actually if if you're looking to see who has first-round value for this year, you should be looking at the top 60 players from the ADPs right now, because they're going to be coming from that well, that group. So you're looking at guys perhaps like Mike Stanton or guys like uh, you know, maybe Eric Hosmer, even though he's you know kind of young and doesn't have a track record. Um, uh, Michael Bourne, you know, is an interesting guy with huge speed. Now going to Atlanta, who might you know move into the first round. You know, a lot of fantasy leaguers think these these uh, one-category speed guys. Uh, don't have first round potential, but you know we forget that Jose Reyes was the number one player in, in in baseball back in 2006. So you know there there are a lot of possibilities there, but you have to open, you have to cast a wider net and 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 look more at the players' long term potential and trends rather than just uh, what's essentially a self fulfilling list of 15 top players based upon the ADPs.
0: This is Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Ron Chandler from BaseballHQ.com. Ron, two of your most eagerly awaited columns every spring are your draft radar articles, looking at players who, for one reason or another, are not on owners' radars. And I'm wondering if you could give us just an example of two hitters you might th- you think might be good buys and why.
4: Um, actually, a player just just brought up uh, earlier, uh, Yadier Molina is is kind of going drafted uh, after the top level catchers this year. You know, he's not considered in you know in the level of you know Brian McCanns and and you know the the uh, buster Posey's and guys like that and matt Weeders he's even behind uh because i think a lot of analysts are expecting that the uh, the power outburst he showed in the second half last year is going to regress but you know when you come when it comes to catchers their offense tends to come later and, and molina's with 29 years old um you know catchers tend to focus more on their defense and then their their bat tends to come around later so i think he might be able to hold those skills that he showed last year a lot better than most people think and we're actually projecting him to improve slightly in this year um so i think molina is is one of those guys who uh might return just as good of a value at catcher as some of the top tier guys and uh you asked for two right yes please yeah, okay. another guy who I find very interesting um, is uh, is M- Mark Reynolds, uh, third baseman on the Orioles. You know, he's got a low batting average, but his power skills are, are 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 very very interesting. And the thing that I find most interesting about a guy like him is that if you take a look and compare him to a guy like Josh Hamilton, who is is going way earlier in drafts, getting um, purchased for maybe ten or twelve dollars more than him. But Reynolds hit 12 more home runs than Hamilton, and all the rest of his counting stats were virtually identical. The major difference was about 70 points in batting average. And that's big. there's, There's no question that's big. But if you think about batting average in terms of it being a statistic that can be managed then suddenly Reynolds' numbers look very, very interesting in that you, you're buying those counting stats that are even better than Josh Hamilton's, potentially. And then the batting average you can manage by drafting other guys who have better batting averages during the draft. But you're saving yourself 10 or $12 on those counting stats, which is huge. So I think Reynolds is, is one of those guys who I think uh, has a lot of upside if you uh, plan him into a, a more overarching um, strategy. Yeah, guys
0: like... Uh, um Adam Dunn, back in the day, maybe not so much now, a little risky, but guys like Mark Reynolds and Adam Dunn, the big power, low batting average guys, give you the luxury, if you roster them, of then later on picking up an all-batting average, nothing else type player for a dollar or two at the end. Guys like Placido Polanco and guys like that who generally have pretty good batting averages but not much else to go on, but between the two of them, for the combined price, you end up with a pretty decent compounded player.
4: Yeah, and it's it's a great strategy that most people don't use because you know, they see the whole package and they think about well, am I going to pay you know twenty seven dollars for for Josh Hamilton or am I going to pay fifteen dollars for um, for Matt Reynolds and they think well I mean I'm getting a more complete package so I'll pay for that but. You can assemble the different pieces and the component parts, and 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 the sum total could be more than than what you're you're actually paying for. So I think it's it's a very workable strategy if you plan it in advance. And can you do the same thing with pitchers? Who are your draft radar pitchers? A couple of examples. Uh, well, on the pitching side, you know, I've I've been uh, basically hyping uh, David Price and Giovanni Gallardo is. As, as my Cy Young candidates this year, you know, everybody's looking at Roy Halliday and Verlander and, and, and Cliff Lee and, and Clayton Kershaw as the top pitchers in the game. But, you know, Price and Gallardo, their numbers and their peripherals are very, very close to that top level. And given the volatility of, of statistics on the pitching side, um, it's very easy to see them moving up into that upper tier very easily, and you're not going to be paying the same uh, the same level as you are going to be paying for the top tier right now. So those are guys who I like as, as, as returning more value than uh, people are paying for.
0: You also mentioned some younger players who are, tend to be overdrafted right at this point. Um, the one name that pops into my mind, I believe, is Brett Laurie of Toronto, who seems to be going a lot higher. I noticed uh, at uh, at the labor draft, he went for more than Alex Rodriguez of all things. And maybe comment on young players getting drafted seemingly a little higher, a little too expensively.
4: Yeah, and part of it's just the allure of, of being the guy who drafts the the the, the, uh, the rookie or the young guy who who has his first breakout season. But you know, a guy like Brett Laurie's got what 150 major league at bats under his belt, and that's that's hardly enough to to uh, determine what his long-term value is going to be, or even his short-term value, and, and he's going way too high in most drafts right now, um, a lot of it because of the uh, the shallowness of the pool at third base, you know, I, I give you that, but uh, gosh, I, I, I would be really uh, reluctant to draft him that high, and you know, even, even a guy like you, Darvish, who we really don't know anything about, he's going ahead of established, you know, major league uh, starting pitchers like Wandy Rodriguez and Jamie Garcia. I mean, and (laughs) it's funny, uh, this week in in spring training, Darvish had a bit of an outing that wasn't all that great. He pitched, I think, two or three innings. He gave up three runs. He walked four batters. You know, in the reports where he couldn't locate his fastball, and suddenly it's like, wait a second, this guy is not God. This guy might have some flaws. He might have some warts. Maybe we're we're, we're overdrafting him or thinking about him too highly. And that you know, that's exactly what we're doing. You know, we, a lot of these guys who don't have track records, it's so dangerous to draft them this high. This is
0: Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler, the founder and publisher of baseballhq.com. Ron, as you know, we have a presence on Facebook, baseballhq.com on the Facebook platform, so go there and like us and you can leave some questions for our guests here at Baseball HQ Radio and Ron, a couple of our followers at Facebook asks some questions. Mike Luck wants to know, would you take a reliever as early as round 4 in a National League 4x4? Uh,
4: well, in the four by four league relievers have more value, so uh, typically they should get drafted higher than you normally would in in a five by five league, since uh, saves can constitute 25 percent of the uh, pitching categories as opposed to 20 percent. But saves are still, you know, really volatile and 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 uh, they're tough to project. So I think fourth round, uh, even in a four by four, is probably a little bit too early, even for the the top level uh, saves guys in an NL league. Um, the closers are a little bit more firm than they are in the American League. the American League, a lot more uncertain situations in those bullpens, but I still think fourth round's a little bit too high.
0: Speaking of relief pitchers, a Facebook follower named Scott Downs, and I'm not sure if that's his real name or whether he's taken the name of the uh, Angels reliever, but he wants to know which established American and National League middle infielders would you recommend later in the draft after the big names and high upside young talent is gone. He's looking for
4: solid, he says, rather than sexy. Yeah, and, you know, t- talking about this whole batting average issue that's, it feeds right into this, uh, two guys, Aaron Hill and, and Kelly Johnson, I think are terrific um, middle infield uh, uh, players. Uh, they. They, they provide power, speed. You know, Aaron Hill. We don't know which which one is going to come this year, whether the speed guy or the power guy. But because both of them have low batting averages, they're being drafted right now in the in the two the hundreds in the ADPs, uh, far behind guys who you know don't have track records like a Dustin Ackley. So um, yeah, I think Hill and, and Kelly Johnson are two great guys to pick up little bit of power
0: potential there, too. And Aaron Hill stole a bunch of bases last year when his power fell off, so maybe some upside in the power if he bounces back even a little bit. Marlon Martinez asks through Facebook about some injury issues. He wonders your thoughts on drafting Peter Borges of the Angels, who has announced that he needs hip surgery after the season. Not a promising announcement for a guy who relies so much on speed. And Logan Morrison of the Marlins still hasn't played after his knee surgery.
4: Yeah, you know, I'd be a little bit hesitant about these guys. Borges is interesting because I would have to assume that the uh, the, uh, the Anaheim team medical staff there has decided that he's healthy enough to play this season, that he can put off the hip surgery till after the season. Um, so although there's something going on there, it's not enough to keep him from playing. So I, I would still be fairly confident in drafting him. I wouldn't be drafting him towards you know, the upside levels, we thought he could be like a 20-homer, 35-stolen-base stud. But, you know, maybe if we see him more along the same lines as what he put up last year, maybe 15 homers, 20, 25-stolen-bases thereabouts, I think that's probably still safe. Logan Morrison is, is interesting because he's got huge talent and huge potential. But I would first want to see him playing a little bit before I'd invest any money in him. Jeff Sobers from Facebook asks: Why are shortstops
0: on the whole being drafted well before their HQ values would indicate? And who are some good mid to late round options for shortstops?
4: I think that the shortstop issue is is, is basically one that revolves around position scarcity. Uh, you know, we've been harping on position scarcity for very long, and I think people now draft those scarce positions uh, to the uh, to the detriment of of their roster. I think you you need to draft. Um, highly reliable players in the early rounds but people are are just looking at those scarce positions catchers going in the third and fourth rounds which which is way too early for even the top level catchers and and shortstops as well going very very uh, uh, far ahead of where they probably should and it's more of a position scarcity play that I think I think that's why it's happening I think we just need to keep that more in perspective.
0: And finally, Jonathan Tagani asks through Facebook if Carl Crawford still has the skills of a top-tier outfielder.
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's only 30 years old. Um, uh, he had an off year last year. He's, he's got a wrist problem now. I don't think we're going to see those skills this year, uh, especially because of the wrist problem. But it's it's very rare for a player to to lose his skills at this age. I think um, there are a lot of factors that went into his off season last year between you know the new contract, the new team, um, you know, playing in Boston is very different than playing at Tampa, so I, I think we can see him bounce back, but probably not fully until 2013. Yeah, it, it strikes me, Ron, that Carl
0: Crawford's kind of in a double whammy situation. He's kind of a valuable player because he had some power and a lot of speed. And the power might be affected by this wrist injury, and the speed is going to be affected by his advancing age. And he's had leg problems. He had leg problems all throughout last year. I'm wondering if we're starting to see the beginning of a decline from that mid $30 value down. I mean, he'll be a solid player, I think, easily in the $20 range, but his $30, $35 days might be behind him.
4: Well, you know it's true that you know we we say that speed is a skill of the young, and and uh, as he passes this this thirty milestone, he uh, his, his stolen base totals are probably going to drop off. But you know if you take a look back at his 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 profile, skills profile in his mid twenties. This was a guy who had the potential to be a twenty twenty five home run hitter and I think he still might be able to to tap back into those skills as as he gets a little older and, and mature in his approach and as he recognizes that he's not going to be able to provide value on the base pass as much as he had before. So I you know, maybe a thirty five dollar value is, is, is in his pass, but I think he still could have thirty dollar potential.
0: And finally, Ron, BaseballHQ.com has an entirely new look this season.
4: Tell us what's been done, and what was the thinking behind what is a really big overhaul? Yeah, the major change we made this year was was kind of to bring this up into the 21st century, and uh, you know, we've had the old site for so long. It, it, but the, the major driver for this whole thing was the navigation issues. There is so much content on BaseballHQ.com. It is so deep. We've had, It's been a challenge to try to organize it in such a way that our readers uh, are able to access everything and, and find everything on the site. So um, we were looking for a way to arrange the menuing structure and, and, and the whole uh, structure of the site, uh, to make it easier to get through, and I think that we've 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 accomplished that very well. And, and uh, the feedback that we've get that we've gotten mostly has been very positive. That people are find it very easy to find the content now and navigate around through the site. So uh, yeah, it's 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 a different experience for those who had been used to the old uh, uh, web design. But uh, I think it's it's a it's a step in the right direction. And it looks really good too, which is,
0: you know, it's not the most important thing, but it is an important thing.
4: Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a pretty looking site now. It it, it looks like you expect a website in, in the in the two thousands and uh, to look like. Ron, thanks very much for doing this. Before I
0: let you go, who's your number one sleeper for two thousand twelve?
4: Number one sleeper. Uh, you know, I'm going to say Adam Dunn uh, because, you know, talking about putting so much. Um, credence into last year's numbers and forgetting about the long-term uh, track record of a player. There are a lot of reasons why Dunn had such a horrible season last year, and, and the projections and, and the early drafts and the mocks and why not. Are, are, I don't think, really giving him proper value to the skill package that he, he presents. I think perhaps the most um, important part of this whole thing is the fact that Ozzie Guillen has gone in Chicago, and there's a whole new management and perhaps a whole new approach, and I think I think we need to give him a mulligan on last year. So I think Adam Dunn may not put up the same 35 home run type of power he's done in the past, but I think it's very possible for him to to come back to be a $25 player again. Uh, And he's being drafted for maybe half that much now. So uh, I'm going to go with Adam Dunn. All right, Ron, thanks
0: very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again, I'm sure, during the year. And, of course, you're here every week with your master notes.
4: Yep, and uh, thanks, Patrick. I love doing this. Uh, Anytime. It's been my pleasure.
0: Ron Chandler is the founder and publisher of BaseballHQ.com. Our commentaries are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Here comes Roger Maris. They're standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number sixty-one. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt, and the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit, peeps the right, it's fucking be it. Way back there. Oh, he's powered. And one
2: power. the right ball out Oh, he's down. What a shot. Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the Market Pulse, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes, and leading off, the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Chicago Cubs first base prospect
2: Anthony Rizzo. With the Chicago Cubs in full-fledged rebuilding mode, one of the more interesting players in this Spring is rookie Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo is an elite prospect who is now with his third team in three seasons after coming over to the Cubs as part of the Andrew Kashner trade this past January. The 23-year-old Rizzo is strong, athletic first baseman with good size plus raw power and the ability to hit for average. He's also a pretty good defender with nice agility and good hands. In 2011, Rizzo had a monster breakout at AAA, hitting three hundred thirty one with a .404 on base percentage and a very impressive .652 slugging percentage. He had 34 doubles and 26 home runs and just 356 at-bats. Rizzo struggled once he was promoted to the majors, and when the Padres acquired Yonder Alonso from the Reds, Rizzo became expendable. Rizzo does need to make more consistent contact. For example, he struck out 46 times in those 128 bats for the Padres. But he also has the tools to become a well above average first baseman with good power, and that power plays much better in Chicago than it did in San Diego. For now, Cubs president Theo Epstein is insisting that Rizzo is behind starter Brian LaHare and is likely ticketed to start the season at AAA Iowa. Keep in mind, however, that LaHare is a 29-year-old and has yet to establish himself in the majors. LaHare does have good power, but he's been at AAA since 2006 and he could be on a very short leash. This spring, Rizzo is off to a solid start going 5-for-14 with a home run and four RBIs. Most likely the Cubs will stick with a plan and not call up Rizzo until early June, but it is a situation worth keeping an eye on. At the very least, the Cubs are unlikely to wait much beyond June to give Rizzo a chance to prove that he's major league ready, which makes him a great target in long-term and only keeper leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com
0: subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During spring training, Rob Gordon has organizational reports and scouting columns. Jeremy Deloney reports on top prospects every week by position. In season, they'll have prospect updates, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and pretty much everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. So if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, well, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about Beyond the Illusion of the Year of the Pitcher.
3: With 2011 being another year of the pitcher, we're seeing more and more owners reach and grab at Justin Verlander, Roy Halladay, Clayton Kershaw, Cliff Lee in the late first, early second round. They think that since there's better pitching out there, they really have to roster an ace more than ever. They may have looked at their standings last year and saw the teams who did the best had some ace pitchers. But in reality, if you look at the bottom half of your standings, you see a lot of teams who gambled on big starting pitchers and they failed. It's more reliable to base your team on hitters, not starting pitchers. Several reasons. Injury risk, performance risk. right? Lots of reasons that pitchers are just less consistent than hitters. Most importantly, the reason to draft hitters early is, is in the middle draft where things start to change. Someone who's taken a lot of starting pitchers early to try to gain an advantage now is only left with third-tier hitters come round 13, 14, 15 as they panic because they realize their offense is far below the rest of the league. Meanwhile, you're using Baseball HQ metrics to identify highly skilled pitchers that are maybe in the second tier, and therefore that gives you an advantage because you're following a plan you started from the beginning. You've got a great, reliable anchor of hitters for your first seven or eight picks. When we look at the player pool this year, we see that the eighth round represents a lot of great value. After you've got your first seven hitters, you can then start to take some starting pitchers. There's some really highly skilled pitchers there that are falling that could outperform their average draft position. So stick to your plan. Don't fall for the illusion that another pitcher starting pitcher must be taken earlier than usual just because stats are better in the pitching categories. The 15th best pitcher is still the 15th best pitcher. The 30th best pitcher is still the 30th best pitcher. The proportions hold true, they're just with better numbers. For the Market Pulse and Baseball HQ, I'm Matt Beagle.
0: Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes, with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about the low price of fungibility.
4: There are players we like and players we don't like. There are also players we really don't like. It may be someone who's burned us in the past and we swear we'd never roster again. It might be someone who exceeds our personal risk tolerance level. Eh, That's all good. For me, I won't roster a player like Matt Moore. Now, he might well be everything the hype purports him to be, but he will be far too expensive to own. I won't pay upwards of $20 or a 7th round pick for a guy whose total Major League experience is 9 innings. Nine terrific innings, but still just 9 innings. I don't have to think back too far to 2007 when Clay Buchholz was similarly hyped, even pitched a no-hitter during his late season 23-inning trial. In the four years since then, he's had one productive season. You don't pay $20 for that level of risk. Similarly, I won't roster a player like Hanley Ramirez. Even before last year's debacle of a season, his trends were heading south. Now he's going to be playing in a new stadium that, from all reports, is extremely averse to hitters. He's moving to a new position, which he clearly does not want to do, no matter how the Marlins have been spinning it. Yet, for some reason, fantasy leaguers seem to think that position scarcity and the promise of sunny days in the past will trump all the risk factors. And they have been paying upwards of $30 and second round picks for that fantasy. Too rich for my blood. So I know who I'm willing to open my wallet for and who I will not even list on my draft sheets. But I'm always asked the following question. How far would Moore or Ramirez have to drop before you'd be willing to draft them? This is an interesting question, actually. First of all, it assumes that my rostering decision is driven by price. At some level, that player is worthy of being on my roster. For Hanley, would it be $20? Or 15 Or 10 If bidding stopped at $5 and I could roster Hanley Ramirez at 6 would I do it? Well, I suppose I would. At some low level, any player who might go bust is fungible. And then the decision becomes, at what price does a player become fungible? A dollar? Five dollars? Can we really consider a player fungible once he reaches ten dollars? In terms of snake drafts, do we really care if a player goes belly-up if he was drafted after around oh, 18, perhaps? Sure, I'd roster any player at a price that I'm comfortable with, but the higher the risk, the lower the price. And once that price drops much below market value, then really the question becomes moot. You can ask me how far Matt Moore would have to drop before I'd be willing to draft him, but the answer is too far below market value for him to even be a consideration. At Mock Draft Central, Moore is going no lower than ADP-126, He's going ahead of pitchers with long-term track records like Matt Garza and Johnny Cueto. He is going 67 spots before Wandy Rodriguez and 75 spots before Jamie Garcia. I'd pay more for Garcia than more in a heartbeat. So why should more even be on my draft list? Well, he's not. For those players who I believe will be far overpriced, I don't even include them on my list. In my auction leagues, eh, they might be on a separate list of players who I'll toss out to get others to bid on, but to make the drafting process more manageable, I call out the players I won't roster. And even thinking about at what point I will draft them is pointless, because the odds are they'll never drop that far. I deal with the reality of market value at the draft table, my entire strategy is driven by it, which means some players simply won't make the cut. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler.
0: Ron Chandler writes a weekly analytics column that appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about the 6th Annual Long Shot Caucus. It's a really fun column. Ron discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. And you can get Ron's master notes in your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also delivers his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March the 17th and show number 9 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Of course, we invite you to tell your friends about our program and to take a second to go over to iTunes and give that show five stars. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler always great to talk with ron we'll have him back throughout the year thanks also to our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business our market watch news analysts were harold nichols and columnist matt beagle who was also our market pulse commentator this week our minor league analyst was rob gordon and of course our master notes commentator as always doing double duty this week BaseballHQ.com publisher ron chandler We have some more great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Rick Wilton's Dr. HQ preseason injury report on shortstops. Alex Becky has a look at strategies for the rapidly growing draft and hold league format. Robert Berger has research into potential 30 stolen base breakout players, always good to know, and our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, and buyer's guides, and much more. I'm Patrick Abbott. My Batting Buyer's Guide column at BaseballHQ.com appears every Tuesday, and I have a Roto-Strategy piece about dumping the auction on the site now. In the meantime, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. You can also check out BaseballHQ on Facebook, and our Twitter feed is at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Lord Zola. It's Todd Zola of MastersBall.com. On another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners, it is Baseball HQ Radio. Happy St. Paddy's. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio, where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.